there can be coarse language and adult concepts in our program. So please watch out for little ears that might be running around if you've got your podcast playing or pop on some headphones and that way no one can get offended but you. Um, when I spoke to people who had been members of the temple, they're like, you know, you probably would have ended up there because it was women of my class and education. And um, yeah, it was like, you know, the all, all your good qualities ultimately being used for evil. Um, that was such a, a frightening idea to me. Rights for Festivals proudly presents the Mudgy Readers Festival. Supported by Writing New South Wales and Create New South Wales. With Pamela Cook and Kel Butler from the Rights for Women podcast. This session is Beautiful Revolutionary, where Laura Elizabeth Woollett and Sherelle Fellows talk about her thrilling new novel, Beautiful Revolutionary, a fictional take on what happened in real life with Jim Jones and the cult of the People's Temple. And I was talking to Laura about this um, earlier. It really, we'll, we'll, we'll actually ask Laura to go further how she got into these characters' heads because she really does climb into these characters' heads. But what really struck me, um, and I was talking to Laura about this, was how she, you get the sense of place but you also get the context of particularly the 70s. And it, it really made me think in sharp focus what a revolutionary time it was. You know, we had the Vietnam War. We had the beginning of, of feminism. Um, I was at uni when people wandered around campuses with Leninist caps and believed in the cause and, and openly smoked dope on the university lawn. It's a very, very different period of time to now. But Laura's got all, Laura has captured this in her book um, right down to, I can remember being in university households where there were glass bead curtains on. <laughs> Maybe there's nods of recognition there. And, and she's got all these fine contextual details really well in place. Mm-hmm. How, how did you do that, Laura? Any, anything vintage. <laughs> yeah, so, um, like a lot of it just came from personal interest. I always thought the 60s and 70s were such an interesting time and I liked those little details and I liked describing the fashions and, um, you know, the yeah, household objects, like you said. Um, but, yeah, I did, I did speak to a lot of people um, from that generation and people who were members of the temple. Um, and, yeah, you know, they gave me those little details as well when I was talking to them and, and things I wouldn't have thought of. Um, and one of my first readers for the book was actually um, Becky, the sister of the woman um, Evelyn is based on and she's very pedantic so if I got something wrong she would tell me as well which was very useful. (laughs) And look I mean obviously the attraction was uh, deeply sexual between Evelyn and Jim Jones. He stayed with his wife this whole time didn't he and the wife had full knowledge and you do include her perspective as well. Are there any sort of records of how she really felt about this going on, Laura? Um, yeah, actually there are because uh, in, in the book I call the wife Rosaline, but um, Marceline in real life, uh, she had a chronic back problem, um, rheumatoid arthritis I think it was, um, and that was like Jones's justification, like my wife is sick so I have to look outside the marriage basically. Um, but, you know, it, it caused her a lot of pain and um, 
her son, Stephen Jones, actually writes very movingly about um, the experience of first meeting Carolyn. Like his dad actually takes him to visit his mistress with him and to sleep over. Um, and uh, Marceline knows about this visit and she's upset about it. And um, Stephen, the son, like comes upon her crying a few days later and just, yeah, so it was obviously something that upset her, but also something that, you know, she pushed down and lived with. Um, and Carolyn as well, she, um, when she revealed the fact that she was with Jones and she had divorced her husband to her parents, um, they weren't happy about it. <laughs> and, um, and her mother would be like, you know, why doesn't he divorce his wife and marry you? And um, Carolyn was always just like, you know, it's not necessary. Um, because the church actually, uh, Marceline was very well loved and um, I think it would have changed people's image of Jim Jones and um, there, were, there were people who were more drawn to Marceline than to Jones. It wasn't all just about him. Um, so, yeah, she, I think... She was called the mother, wasn't yeah, she? She, she, of was, the, of she the was the mother to his father and, um, you know, the congregation were brother and sister. Um, yeah, so losing her would have been a big loss to the church and um, Jones knew that and he knew that she was important and um, so, yeah, he just tried to keep both women at the same time. And, yeah. and, and the first time that her parents actually, they come, I think it's Christmas, isn't it? Yeah, or New Year? Towards the end of the year. Yeah, towards the end of the year and they come thinking they're going to visit Evelyn and, and Lenny. Um, and they turn up at the house where they've been sending letters and they're not there and they find that Evelyn has moved to a cabin. Um, but they don't even know. She hasn't even communicated that she's... She, tell us about that first time they turn up at the cabin because it's pretty yeah. pretty horrific. Well, I, I actually based my description in the book on um, real events as well. Um, yeah, the parents basically showed up and didn't know that they're daughter was divorced didn't know that she was living in this place um they knew that she was a member of people's temple and they knew that she was very into it but they didn't know about her relationship with jim jones so all at once they're getting all these horrible surprises and um as well as that she she has a black eye um when they they visit her and she gives some stupid excuse for why it's there and they don't really believe her um and she has a gun and, you know, the family was, um, they were all about nonviolence. And so seeing their daughter with a gun in the house was, again, another blow. So they had, um, they were seeing their daughter with a black eye, with a gun, her husband is gone. And then she like, um, introduces them to Jim Jones and says, this is the man I love. <laughs> Yes, and the, the father in particular is devastated because um, he was a minister, wasn't he? Like she'd been raised in a very traditional religious household and the mother actually, she, she walks outside and she says to her husband and the younger sisters in the car, Evie is so smart, I don't understand. Tell us about Evie's intellect, Laura, because it's, it's really extraordinary. Yeah, well, she, she's a very intelligent woman, um, and I think she's a, the sort of person who enjoys doing anything well, no matter what it is. Um, and, and that was true of Carolyn as well. Just um, talking to her family, they said uh, when she was a teacher, she was asked to um, 
also teach PE, even though she wasn't a, a, an athletic person. And so she, she was like, teach me how to play tennis. So, so I know. Um, so she liked doing things well and she was a perfectionist. Um, but yeah, she, she grows up in this household with these values, which are instilled in her in an early age, you know, to, um, yeah, p- treat people as equals. And, um, yeah, she grew up in a very political household. Um, it was religious, but they, her father was the type of minister who, um, wasn't just about scripture. He, he really believed in helping people and, um, Christianity in a, person-to-person sense um so she had those values but she was also very smart she went to college and um went to study in France for a year and became fluent and was engaged to a Frenchman for a while but that didn't work out um but yeah she came back and completed college she she mastered in um political science and she had ambitions of working for the UN um and yeah she was really always very interested in politics and always very interested in um world events and so tell me about uh some of the things that uh she was involved in in doing in the people's temple laura because she became increasingly important well um her role was always very undefined but everyone knew that carolyn had power um one person I spoke to described her as the grey eminence of Jonestown, which is a, a phrase meaning the power behind the throne. Um, and someone who has power but in an unofficial capacity and um, you're not really sure what they do, but they're, they're doing things. So she was, um, yeah, very much involved in administration and organisation within the temple. Um, but, you know, her title was really just secretary, but she did a lot more than that. Um, she was involved with finances as well within the temple. Um, there, there were a few trusted um, inner circle members who knew where the offshore bank accounts were and were actually responsible for transporting money illegally overseas, and she, she took part in that. Um, and, yeah, she, she was definitely a decision maker and she was privy to a lot of Jones's decisions before they were brought to the wider community um and yeah there's also evidence that she was um if not involved in the planning of the massacre um definitely she discussed it and approved of it because there are documents existing um yeah and uh just picking up on um the financial planning um should have asked you about this prior but is it actually true the way that the money was transported? I mean, we have to remember this is pre-online banking um, and if you had to move cash, you actually moved cash physically into Swiss bank accounts. Um, and, you know, it's early in the morning, but do you want to describe how it was women who, a team of women who transported massive amounts of cash? Laura, do you want to tell us about that? Well, as well as the more conventional methods of like money belts and strapping cash to their bodies um they also got tampon boxes and um rolled up cash and put it inside tampon applicators and um had all these boxes within their luggage and when their luggage was inspected by um at customs 
the guards would just be like, oh, okay, I don't want to touch this <laughs> women's stuff. And, um, yeah, so they got, got through and they um, also, yeah, would um, flirt with guards and that sort of thing to move it along. Um, they, they used their femininity to... Yes, it was yeah. all the very young and attractive members of the People's Temple who were, were sent to carry out this mission. Uh, but it was massive amounts of money, wasn't it? You know, just offshore completely. Yeah, and um, after Jonestown, there was a lot of investigations to uncover all the money and it. I think it was about $10 million, but then there was also interest on top of it. So, um, yeah, they were a very rich organisation. Which was a lot of money. Uh, back in the in the 1970s, mm-hmm. and um, and the, I, I remember very early, you know, Lenny. They do separate, which is it's pretty awful the way it happens. Isn't it? And and Jim also engineers at one point a beautiful young replacement wife for Lenny, who I think Jim and basically Evelyn choose. Yeah, and well, Evelyn isn't very happy with it, but she is just like, okay, I'm not being objective. Okay, he needs to move on. Sure. You know, she, she's not overjoyed by it, but she she backs up Jim when he makes, up, makes that decision as she does when he makes a lot of decisions. Yes. Tell me about the cancer healing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, well, as I, I said, People's Temple was a socialist organisation, but... A lot of people who were members of the church were attracted to it for religious reasons because um, I'm not sure of his exact phrasing, but Jones basically said, um, you know, bring people into socialism through religion, you know, um, like in an underhanded sort of way. Um, And he really took on the Pentecostal sort of type of religion, which was um, all about faith healing and... Um, yeah, you know, curing cancer and making the blind see. Um, so he would have these completely fake healings and people, you know, who were members for non-religious reasons, which was a lot of the membership, would actually help him um, carry out these fake healings and fake predictions. Um, they would help him get information from people um, who they knew would be attending services. And... Um, yeah, one of the things that they did was um, he would say someone had cancer and um, kind of underhandedly put a chicken giblet um, in their mouth and then, like, remove it. If there was a whole uh, group of nurses dedicated yeah. to assembling these chicken gizzards yeah. and then they would miraculously appear um, and everyone would go, oh, they're cured, you know. And it sounds so fake, but people really... Did believe it, and he had a whole team of people going out, and in again a pre-internet, pre-Facebook age, going through people's rubbish bins to see what their habits were, and yeah. then miraculously reveal it. Well, one one thing I really liked because I, I work in the call center um, as my day job, and <laughs> one, one thing they did was um, fake telephone surveys where they would be like, you know, asking questions about someone's medical history or something but in in the guise of um a pharmaceuticals company or all sorts of things and they would just get this information from people that they didn't really think about the fact that they were giving it away and um yeah he would use it when they came to the temple and um you know say uh you use this medication and um yeah and that that sort of fusion of um 
religion and the cause. And that's, I mean, it go back to that 70s context where revolution and, and communism was seen. He was a great fan of Russia, wasn't he? Um, and he really did believe and that there would be a communist revolution. And he was establishing this incredible uh, utopia. But um, it didn't quite work out that way when they eventually went to Guyana. To Guyana. But there was also um, a tremendous cruelty in him as well. Um, and without getting too gory, I shuddered every time in the book, Laura, when someone had been called to a private counselling session. Well, um, yeah, he, he would call both young men and young women to these. And um, basically he would say, you need to have a one-on-one -on -one relationship with the cause, which basically meant him having sex with them. Um, and he would say, you know, this is, you're not, you know, believing enough on your own, so you need this one-on-one -on -one relationship. And, um, yeah, it, it was very creepy. Extremely creepy. And, and there's one moment in the, in the book, without giving too much away, where a very young girl is taken for some counselling and is, is, is Rosalind there at, at that point? And one of the other young, the brother just says, how can you, how can you let this happen? You know, he's, he's, he's up there screwing her. And she sort of says, oh, you know, like, yeah. is there evidence that that sort of thing happened? Uh, um, yeah, like that there was, I, I based that on a particular thing, but I, I, dramatized it a bit obviously um but I think there was a young girl um 14 years old and um yeah I I heard I listened to an audio tape and it was about um well Marceline and the mother of this girl were talking and um the the woman and the girl I think had actually defected by that point and they were trying to convince them to stay in the church and um, you can just hear in Marceline's voice that she really doesn't want to be defending her husband and, um, and yet she is and it's just like, what's going on? Um, yeah, so a lot of the women were aware of these things going on and they just found ways to justify them. You know, I reckon the, the, the focus is Evie and her character and her relationship with Jim and it's, it's through... We, it's not in, it's, we just follow her perspective, but also Lenny as well. But you do include, just briefly, but I think it's really important that you do, you do include the perspectives of some of those defectors. Uh, tell us a bit about why you did that, Laura. Well, there were so many changes in the temple over the year as it grew, and the first part of my book is really mostly devoted to Evelyn and Lenny and how they join the church and gradually become more and more immersed um but then I break away from them and actually have this chapter called children of the revolution and um it's about this group of young people with a focus on um a girl Bobby and a boy called Wayne um who end up defecting from the church and they're children of families who've been members since Indiana um and I thought that that side of things was also really important to show because um the temple wasn't just Evelyn and Lenny and it wasn't just these young Californian people. It was also people who joined a lot earlier and people who had family ties within the church and um, who really saw it as a family and 
so leaving it was as difficult as leaving a family. It, it's very clear because one of the defectors, um, I think, is it Wayne? Is it, he was actually involved, like all dictators, I suppose, but he was involved in a fake assassination attempt, mm-hmm. Jim, wasn't he? And after this fake assassination, Jim then goes to his people and says, I need an army. Um, and all of a sudden this peace-loving community has people walking around with, you know, semi-automatic weapons and, and berets and they start to enforce the rules. There's even the suggestion, uh, Laura, that, that the, the, the policeman who actually goes many years later to visit his daughter who's defected is kind of executed by the, the temple, isn't there? You know, it's, it's a bit ambiguous, isn't mm-hmm. it? But is there evidence to suggest that? Well, um, yeah, I did want to leave it ambiguous because yeah. there was a man in 1976 who um, was planning or possibly plan- planning to leave the temple and he died um, in circumstances which were quite suspicious. Um, yeah, I, I won't say how he dies, but um, it, it's similar to the character. And... Um, I spoke to a couple of different survivors about it and one guy I spoke to, um, he had actually defected from the church and uh, he was a strange guy. I really liked him but he was very much a believer in extrasensory perception and visions and that sort of thing. Um, so I'm like, oh, what, what do you think about Bob's death? Like, Do you think um, it was planned by the temple? And he was like, yeah, when I went to Bob's funeral, I got this voice coming through my head um, saying that these are the people who killed me um, with a focus on some temple members who were also attending. Um, so he, he really believed it was planned by the temple. Um, but then I spoke to another guy who was part of the temple until the end um, but wasn't in Jonestown. Um, and I, I was like, what did, what did you think of Bob's death? And he's just like, oh, Bob had narcolepsy. He he was overtired and, um, you know, we were all overtired. It could have happened to anyone. He shouldn't have been working in that place on such little sleep. And um, so he didn't believe it was something like that. Anything suspicious. Yeah. And look... um, Let's let's actually go to the the title of the book. Let's let's actually go to Beautiful Revolutionary. Where does that come from? Well, to be honest, I just liked the way those two words sounded together. <laughs> I mean, it was one of those titles that just came to me whole, and I never thought of this book being called anything else. Um, but I, in, within the book, it's a thing that Jim Jones says to people, and especially to young women. Um, you know, you're a beautiful revolutionary. This, this is your purpose. You know, um, this is what you are when you're a member of this church. You wouldn't be that if you weren't part of it, basically. So it's, um, it, it's you know, a, a thing that is appealing to these people because they want to be revolutionaries and they want to be beautiful at the same time. And yeah. And he also, doesn't he suggest at, at one point to Evelyn in particular that um, in a previous life, she was the wife of a great revolutionary and he suggests that he himself is the reincarnation of Lenin uh, at, one, at one point as well. And, and this, the, the whole notion of reincarnation is, is really important too, isn't it? Yeah, and actually um, Carolyn, writing to her family, because she wrote a lot of letters um, after they found out about her and Jim Jones, 
she would constantly try to justify her relationship to her family and to talk about how good Jim was. And one of them, um, yeah, she says, you know, we, he, Jim says we were connected in this past life. He was Lenin. I was Lenin's mistress, Inessa Armand, who was um, a French woman who kind of, um, I think she was part of the October Revolution with him. Um, yeah, and, you know, I'm like, does she actually believe this or is, is she just saying this because it sounds powerful? And, yeah, that, that was a funny thing. But um, Jones was constantly saying, you know, I'm the reincarnation of Jesus, of Lenin, um, can't remember who else. And look, um, with um, I'm still fascinated by um, some of the shaming that happened, and without sort of giving away a little bit, I, I think um, what happens to, to Lenny, and I'm, I'm not going to discuss it, other than he is publicly shamed because his newly chosen wife, Tara, um, she becomes one of the traitors, she actually defects. She's sent on yet another secret mes- um, secret mission and, and she defects. And he cops the, the sort of blame for that, you know, your wife is a, a traitor. And he's he's physically kicked, isn't he, and shamed. And, and I just, I nearly cried because you've got this dis- this description of him where he actually says that he's just <laughs> a pebble dropped off the side of the mountain and nothing. He's, and I, it was so sad because he's lost his previous, he's lost his current wife, he's lost his previous wife, he's still believing in the cause and yet he becomes a complete scapegoat and he's just reduced to nothing. Yeah, yeah. And that's the thing because it's like, um, you know, this belief in equality and stuff but then at the same time there is this reduction of people to, you know, barely being people and Lenny experiences it and other members whose perspectives I don't show also experience it. That's right. And and I think there was a it, there was a disproportionate number of black Americans mm-hmm. in this group too because they were first attracted to the idea that we can be equal in this. But one of the defectors, his perspective is very much actually no. Everyone who has got power in this church is is still white and, mm-hmm. and sort of rejects that that promise is false, doesn't he? Yeah, and it, it was very true of the organisation because um, I think it was about 80% of the victims of Jonestown were African-American um, and a lot of them were women and children. And yet the power structure was mostly white women um, and mostly women who Jim Jones was sleeping with. Um, and, yeah, they, they managed to justify that structure, but it was always a thing that stood out to people and especially people who visited the temple in later years. And actually, um, Becky, the, the sister who I spoke to, came and visited the temple in 1974. And that was one thing that stood out to her. And both her sisters were members. Um, she, she was the middle sister. And Carolyn, her older sister, was a member and also a younger sister called Annie. Um, but Becky came and visited and she, she was just like, everyone in power is white. And, you know, this doesn't seem like it's really practicing what it's preaching. Yes. And look, let's let's... We really do get inside Evie's head. And, yes, she's passionately, she really wants to believe in something. This gives her life purpose, in a sense, doesn't it, in devoting to the cause. But there's also an incredible sexual connection and I, I was really struck by the way you, you portrayed that. 
And I, there's one phrase, one phrase which I am going to read out, which really got to me. Um, she said, there are unspoken things between her and Jim. She feels her, she feels her insides rippling and lurid as sea corals. Um, she's just totally besotted and obsessed by this man. And, you know, Laura smiled wryly at me and I said, it, it almost reminded me of Catherine and Heathcliff, <laughs> you know, with the rocks elemental beneath the earth. It's, it's, it's this incredible, it's not just the cause. It's so, it's so fused. There's this incredible chemistry between them, isn't there? Yeah, and Evelyn has had a lot of past relationships. Like she she doesn't come to Jim Jones as this blank virginal slate. She has um, a history before Lenny, she was engaged and had a very passionate relationship with a French guy. Um, and she has had other, you know, one-night stands and less important relationships. And um, one thing that she hates about men is how easily they move along. Um, and with Jim, she feels like he's not indifferent to me. If I, if I leave him, you know, he, he'll you know, die or he'll want to kill me. Like, it's this you powerful... Have, and, absolutely. Yeah. You know, I, I, the other thing, I remember there's one phrase that's quite early in the book and mm -hmm. I think I think it's after the, the black eye, you know, which, which happens during sex in that classic abusive way. And, you know, she says, um, he cherished her and he wanted her dead. Mm -hmm. Like, it was just... And yet she just is so besotted with him. Yeah, and I think her attraction to him really ties into um, she doesn't always like herself and she doesn't like being herself and with him she can kind of be absent from herself and just um, this kind of self-destruction or self-abnegation. Very much so. And, and I, you know, moving the, the structure of the book because it, you know, it would be many, many volumes if you, because it is if you actually documented the whole history but you cover basically a 10-year period. Mm -hmm. How difficult was it to decide what bits to leave out and how to structure it? Because the book's actually in three books, isn't mm -hmm. it? You know, three separate sections. How, how did you make those decisions? Um, well, the first part of the book just, you know, became very big and that's 1968 to 1969. Um, but then I'm like, you know, so much happens. I need to skip forward and just focus on the most interesting to me parts. Um, because if, if I was like, now it's 1970, now it's 1971, um, you know, you don't need to know everything and you can kind of, I like it when readers are able to fill in the gaps a little bit and um, be like, okay, we're in a new place and get their bearings and be like, oh, okay, so this is a thing now. You don't want to describe every little detail. Um, so, yeah, the second section of the book is um, has the most time jumps in it. It goes from, like, 1972 and then it's 1975, then it's 77. Um, yeah, and I, I just thought those were interesting times and I, I selected uh, a few events and um, which would allow me to explore these characters. And, yeah, um, and then the last section of the book is Jonestown and that, kind of takes place over I think six months um so it it was kind of like this you know expanded um description of a short period of time at the beginning and end but in the middle 
you go go to different places and I think it's the sort of thing some people might be disoriented by and not like but other people will be like yeah I, I liked that you did that and no, I, I thought it was very effective. You, 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 you could tell that you were shifting forward in time because it would have been impossible to, mm-hmm. to not do so otherwise. Um, you know, staying with the Jonestown section of the book, um, it's quite true, isn't it, that by this stage, you know, um, Jonestown was in Guyana and um, this wonderful utopia where they were going to grow their own food and have this colony, etc., wasn't going all that well because it wasn't a particularly fertile section of land um, and it wasn't as equal as it was meant to be. And some of the relatives actually came over to investigate and there was a, a, a congressman who came over. And it was at this point it became really clear to me that and I don't know if this, if this is the case, Laura, but this is the impression I had, that Laura really was the... By this stage, you know, Jim Jones was in pain and constantly on morphine. <laughs> you know, he's sitting in a room, you know, on, on morphine. Um, and, and Evie was kind of running the whole show, even managing the congressional visits and making everything appear okay. I mean, she was certainly a very powerful person and it's her and an inner circle but she is really when Jim isn't in the room she's the person who people defer to um yeah and she she was had a lot more official power in Jonestown than she did in previous years I can't remember what her title was but um there was a triumvirate of um, people who were in power and she she was one of them um yeah but she she definitely was very much more involved in the day-to-day running of the organisation than Jim Jones was. And um, she and other people really supported things and kept things running, um, even if they were running badly. (laughs) And since we're in that final section of the book, Mm -hmm. would you like to read us a little bit, please, Laura? I I just think, you know, it's incredibly powerful prose and we, we need to hear a bit from this final section because, yeah, Laura will explain. Well, this is actually a flashback. So it's from the final section, but it's actually a flashback to 1966 um, when Evelyn is still in college. And I I think it's a nice little introduction to her and to Lenny a little bit as well. When she heard the doorbell ring on that smoky blue evening in the fall of 66, in the house she shared with her many girlfriends, Evelyn had been ready to fall in love with whoever might be standing on the other side of it. A bone-deep readiness bordering on boredom, she was bored. She could admit it. After Bordeaux, Jean-Claude. Those miserable weeks staying in hostels without Jean-Claude. The weeks after those weeks back in her parents' house, not knowing why she was there. How she could have given up the world for the slow drip trickle of church, relatives. Everyone tiptoeing around her broken engagement like she'd die if it was mentioned. Yes, bored. She was bored of those girls she lived with. Joan, Linda, Marilyn, Mary Kay. And the little house they'd taken such pains to beautify. Bored of how she acted around those girls, like a pinwheel desperate to spin faster, brighter than the rest. Sharing stories, stories of lanterns along the Pont de Pierre, recipes for crepe Suzette, spurning cosmetics and, and prim shift dresses to go about fresh-faced in flouncy gypsy skirts. She'd even mastered talking about Jean-Claude without getting upset. And if anyone dared to ask what they were all wondering, why, could summon the perfect tone of worldly resignation. Honestly, the better my French got, the less interesting he was. 
Yet this didn't change the fact that she was bored by the sound of her own voice, that her life, for all its grand intentions, had never seemed so trivial. It was enough to make her want to, well, maybe not kill herself, but join the Peace Corps, maybe, spend a year on the Ivory Coast, or maybe, just maybe, fall in love again. So she was the first to jump at the sound of the bell, to abandon the canapes they were fussing with, to wipe her hands and chime, I'll get it. The canapes were her idea, but already it was clear they'd overdone it. Some grad students had cancelled last minute, and to, and to make up the numbers, Joan and Mary Kay had spent the afternoon inviting random cute boys, while the rest of them cleaned and shopped. Yet so far the only guests to show up were Lyndon's cousin Judy and Cronkite, a neighbourhood cat whose vis- visits coincided with the evening news. There was a wine glass in her hand, a barrette in her hair. Over the summer, she'd decisively grown out the chic French girl bob she'd worn since sophomore year, sipping her wine, tucking her hair, feeling the glitter of wine in her eyes, the warmth on her cheeks. That's how she was when she opened to the smoky blue evening, the beautiful blue-eyed boy whose name she didn't yet know, know was Lenny Linden. You're here, Evelyn beamed at him. I'm so glad. And that's the beginning of the relationship. And it appears at the end as a flashback because everything is so different. Um, she was the popular girl at college and now when she walks through Jonestown, people just disappear and yeah. clam up because they're frightened of her, mm-hmm. basically, and her life has really changed so much. Look, um, I'm conscious of the time and that surely uh, people out there have perhaps got some questions from Laura about about her book. Has anyone got some questions? Um, I'm fascinated that you chose Evie as your character um, and I'm very curious uh, about what drew you to her. Was it something within yourself that you followed in her character? And um, if so, what were the particular things about her that perhaps you found in yourself that made you sympathetic or Mm -hmm. empathetic to her? Yeah, well, I, I think early on I saw the pictures of these women in Jonestown and um, Carolyn, who Ev- Evelyn is based on, was one of them. And, yeah, they were these, you know, young brunette women who had all this power and I'm just like, you know, could have been me, I guess. And, <laughs> so um, that, that really crossed your mind, it could have been you. Yeah, yeah. and I think yeah. um, when I spoke to people who had been members of the temple, they're like, you know, you probably would have ended up there because it was women of my class and education and um yeah it was like you know the all all your good qualities ultimately being used for evil um Mm. that was such a a frightening idea to me and um Mm. I really wanted to explore who she was and she really appealed to me because I I saw that um she was ambitious and sensitive and intelligent and all these things and yet there was this underlying um constant sort of insecurity which I think drew her to drones um okay. yeah so she, she felt very complex to me and there were, there were all, all these layers to Beautiful. her Beautiful. yeah thank you Laura, it's quite impressive the level of research that you've done for a a work of fiction. Um, Regarding the actual suicide event, what does the research indicate in terms of of the hundreds of people who died? How many went into it willingly versus those who were hoodwinked? And what was their thinking around um, their objective? Like, you know, how would this mass suicide event, um, you know, deliver on their revolutionary ideals yeah um well i think the majority it probably was unwilling especially when you take account for the fact that um a third of them were 
minors. They, they were under 18. Um, but I, I think there was a fanatical small group for whom it would be suicide. But I think really the majority, hundreds, would be um, considered murder. If not, um, even if they did do it in a way which seemed willing, because they had been so primed to this idea before it actually took place. It wasn't coming out of nowhere. They had discussions of revolutionary suicide um, and even suicide drills um, before the ultimate event. Um, but they, they actually, before the idea was decided on, they would have meetings where people would be like, oh, no, we should do this instead. We should go to Russia instead. We should go to Cuba. We should fight for what we believe in, not just lay down and die. Um, but it was kind of justified to them and you have to also recognize that they were uh, overworked, overtired. Um, their lives were not good lives, you know, so they didn't have this attachment to their lives that, that they would have otherwise. Um, and they were also really isolated and um, they had fake news coming in where uh, basically Jones would be like, oh, all these things are happening to African-Americans um, you know, they're being put in concentration camps and stuff, so we can't go back to the U.S. now. Um, yeah, so life was made to seem like a miserable, really miserable thing to them and a thing that they shouldn't have an attachment to. And um, beyond that, the idea of revolutionary suicide was kind of supposed to symbolise their togetherness, their equality. You know, if we can't be equal in life, if, if the world is against us, we can be equal in death. That, that's basically how he justified it to people. And that there was somehow that reincarnation idea came across too, that they were crossing over to the other side and they were defeating the enemy America, who yeah, may have yeah. sent people in to dismantle the colony. This was their ultimate mm -hmm. act of protest. Yeah, he would often say, you know, the world isn't ready for us. We'll, we'll, we'll come again and we'll, we'll be better and the world will be ready for us then. Um, Laura, you've obviously done a heap of research for this book and, you know, it even sounds almost like an completely non-fiction book in some ways. How did you sort of navigate that line between fiction and non-fiction and deciding how much of it to fictionalise? Um, yeah, I mean, it kind of came naturally to me in a way because I I did have all this research, but I kind of, I always had an idea of my characters and where they were going and um, what I wanted to show about them. So, yeah, I think, yeah, it, it's more of a, it's more interesting to me how people interpret it now that it's written because to me it feels like fiction even though it is so founded in research um but a lot of people will just be focusing on the real events um and not knowing what's real and what what I've created um but I think it was most important to me to be true to the characters as I perceived them and um to tell a story which was about these characters and their development and I used real events when I could um and when there wasn't anything available, I, I would make something up. Um, yeah, so it, it, it was a, a fun line to tread. But um, I, I think some people are like a bit uncomfortable with the idea of fiction that is so non-fictional. Um, yeah, it, it's for me, it felt natural though. Yeah. And that's always historical fiction. Uh, look, I just, at the outset, I said this was one instance where I didn't want to give away the ending, but just to... To touch on that, on historical fiction, I got to the end of this book um, knowing what it was, but I was sitting there reading this, I mean this in all honesty, saying to myself, no, 
please no, you know, just speaking that out loud. And I finished the book and I was absolutely devastated, really devastated. Even though I knew it was coming, I was devastated. And that's the power of story. No, that's the power of um, historical fiction, but just the power of story as opposed to reading the Wikipedia entry. Um, I just, I was devastated. And, you know, one other review that I read um, at the very beginning just said, climb aboard and hold on tight. And you really do need to. You, you need to. It's an incredibly powerful and, and wonderful book and you'll be totally immersed. And as I said, the ending, Laura, I just, I think I had to have several glasses of wine and several cups of tea. <laughs> and look, please thank Laura. If you enjoyed this presentation of Rights for Festivals, please jump onto the Rights for Women website, www.rightsforwomen.com, to see what else we have on offer. There's the National Young Writers Festival. We have Scone coming up. You can also find Rights for Festivals in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can keep up with all the latest news, episodes, and festivals at our Facebook page, Rights for Festivals. Thank you for listening and thank you for supporting writing festivals.